You are listening to the dulcet tones of the DAP Project. I'm your co-host, Rhonda Elizabeth. And I'm looking up dulcet in the dictionary. Ah, here we are. Pleasant to the ear, melodious. As always, my co-host is correct. TDP got those dulcet tones indeed. I'm your co-host, Aaron Stallworth. Season four is dedicated to exploring resilience. Now, if there's a calling where you have to demonstrate resilience, it's the music business. You're driven by passion, but also have to put in the work to hone your craft. It is always a dope conversation when hearing from creatives and the passion that drives them. We're talking today with DC-born and award-winning saxophonist, Marshall Keys. I met Marshall when I moved across the street from him into the LaJorte Park neighborhood near Howard University. As soon as I became a neighbor and friend, I became a fan of his music. I am very excited to get into this conversation. Welcome to The Dap Project. All right, welcome folks to The Dap Project. It is my pleasure and I'm sure my co-host pleasure to welcome to The Dap Project, Mr. Marshall Keys. My pleasure as well. Welcome, Marshall. Thank you. We want to throw you right into the deep end of the debt project and ask you two questions that we ask all of our guests. What neighborhood did you grow up in? And what is your earliest memory of debt? I grew up in Michigan Park off of, the, uh, off of South Dakota Avenue, right behind the first McDonald's ever in D.C., right there at the corner of Delafield and South Dakota Avenue. I remember when that sign said, over one billion sold. <laughs> well, can I tell you about my last memory of that? Please. This is a good story. <laughs> so I went to get my hair cut this morning mm-hmm. because, you know, it's important to look good when you're being interviewed on the radio. So I get my hair cut, and it's this young barber that's been doing my hair the last couple of times. And and he's got a couple of guys in there, and when the guys leave, they all dab each other, mm-hmm. and they're about to leave. And I said, oh, wait a minute. So I asked them the exact same, a similar question. Mm-hmm. I told them about your, your project, your podcast. All right, thank you. And I shared some of my feelings about, about depth and I asked them what were their, you know, did, did they know where it came from? And of course they did not. And neither did I until I looked it up. Mm-hmm. And what a powerful story that is. Like everything that is that lasts a long time, like everything that is part of of American culture, DAP was initiated, started, thought up by by black people. Like everything else, like like all the music we listen to, all the dances we dance, and like everything else, it's been um, sort of—I I, want to say—diluted a little bit, mm-hmm. appropriated most certainly. Anyway, so I told them about about the origins as far as going back to Vietnam, and they were completely blown away and fascinated by it, just as I was. And of course, DAP is part of so much a part of their lives, like 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 breathing, you know, but. And like me, and like most people, I'm sure, they've never considered 
um, where it came from. And again, knowing that this thing that's part of their life has such a powerful backstory, I'm sure it changed at least their day, you know, which is, which is a, a, a beautiful thing to be a part of, to be able to share that. So, and as far as my, my, my uh, we've been, I don't know where I, I first did it or where I first heard about it. Mm-hmm. My father did it, mm-hmm. but in a very restrained way. Really? What did that look like? Yeah, it was just, just, um, um, just, just that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bringing the hands together. Yeah. There was, was no, there was no percussiveness. In no, his. it was just a handshake, but in the uh, the clasp, like in our logo, I guess. Yeah, yeah, okay. pretty much. Yeah. And and I would see him shake hands just as often. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, the way I greet people is with the. That handshake and the the bro hug with a little bounce on the back of the shoulder. Excuse my, my dog, the microphone. Yeah. So, because I like, I'm a, I won't say I'm a hugger, but I like to hug people. Mm-hmm. I like to. That a little bit of a hug is good. Aaron would Too call much that hug a proper is, hug. Yeah, proper hug. Yes. <laughs> like. Like like when you hug somebody that you don't know really well, you don't want to you don't want to embrace them. That's right. You, know, <laughs> you don't you want the sh- whole you body. You want to show love, but you don't want to show too much love. That's right. <laughs> There's a fine line. That body language is yeah. so important because it communicates so much in just a few seconds. Yeah. And and sometimes you know people don't want to be hugged. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Right. Um, and of course, with the pandemic, the the whole the DAP has gotten to be such a more important you know sort of response and, and reflex because no one's shaking hands anymore right I, w- I may never shake another man's hand mm-hmm. at least not not like that right right you know just just that thing but, but the fist bump is kind of it's very effective yeah it's and it speaks volumes if you you know if you, if you make eye contact so anyway when you're in the studio or on stage or amongst your peers as a musician, do you find yourself ever exchanging depth? Yes. Okay. As Always. That's a common thing. Okay. Always. Yeah. What does it tell you about a musician when you're first exchanging depth? Well, I don't do it with everybody all the time. When I meet somebody, I do it. When I, when I see people who I have, um, who I'm, very familiar with, then I, you know, then I, I, I do that, but I don't really think about it. You know, you, you force me to think about something that I have never thought about. Um, it's just something that I've always done, or not. Mm-hmm. You know, if I have to think about when when I did it and when I didn't do it, it'd be a very difficult you know, mental journey to take. But now that you're asking me about it, yes, it's it's something that that uh, I used to do all the time. I don't do it all the time anymore because I don't touch people. <laughs> Mainly because of the pandemic, or because of just getting a little bit more. Because people are just nasty. <laughs> so we've been talking about resilience over the past couple of months. And so we want to talk with you about that. Let's start with how we thought about it, and then we're interested 
and how you think about it. And then we'll talk about some early memories of resilience. There's one I have specifically that you might share as well. We'll see. So we think about resilience as having a hope, a setback, and a recovery, always with a goal in mind. How does that idea resonate with you? I think of resilience as being able to withstand a setback or a crisis. It could be a small one or a, or a big one. You know, it, it may rock you. It may make you back up a step. It may knock you down. But resilience is the ability to get back up and resume whatever your posture was before that happened. But resilience does not help me get past my previous state. You use the word goal. You know, I think most people who who think they're being resilient and who actually are being resilient, I don't think they have a, necessarily a goal past wherever they were when something happened to them. So being able to have that sort of self-actualization where you have a dream that you want to accomplish. The resilience might get you back to where you were in that, on that path to realizing that dream, but it's never enough to just get back to where you were unless that's all you ever want. Mm -hmm. And you told me earlier before we even started this, this case, sometimes, no matter how good it is, there's always something more that you can, you can wish for. And, and being a musician, it's never enough. It's never, I mean, people will applaud for you and tell you that it's, it was a, a nice show or that they were moved by what you do, but you have your own calculus about what you did. And you have your own ways that you measure your competence or your mastery, and it's never enough. So if, if my, my goal is to be a better saxophone player, then that goal is never going to be reached. And it takes resilience to maintain and, and to be composed enough to do this every day, continue this grind. I've been doing it for a long time. It's very important. But resilience to me has to be paired with that longer vision of being able not to get back to where you were but to get back to where you want to be i appreciate that perspective as well as you're bringing it back to music there's a very specific memory that i have connected to music and resilience and maybe you share it as well with the dc youth orchestra in the summers it was hot coolidge was a hot box yes it was and uh so there was no air conditioning except maybe in the office but where I, I hadn't i forgot about that Oh, I will never forget because as I'm playing the violin, my fingers are slipping up and down the fingerboard because it's getting super sweaty. My legs are sticking to the chairs. We're on stage rehearsing. The lights are bright from the stage. So that memory is one that uh, reminds me of developing resilience and persistence early as a child. So I want to ask you something similar. When you were a child or a younger person, however you want to define your youth, what are some of those early memories of developing resilience, especially the ones that carried you to where you are today? 
you know, the the example you just gave of, um, you know, my memories of, of my time in, in, in that program. I was never, I did one concert with the orchestra, but I was in the, in the, the band part, you know. So mm-hmm. there was the beginning band and the elementary band and then the junior band and the senior band. Then there mm-hmm. was a concert band. So we were yeah. going from one class to another. So we weren't we weren't in that big room with all those other sweaty kids. Oh, chow. Okay. Well, lucky like you. you. Yeah, we were so sweaty. So, so I I probably did this for I don't know six seven years, mm-hmm. and it was a joyous thing. Every Saturday during the summer, and sorry, every day during the summer. That's right. And every Saturday during, during the, the school, school year. Day. Yeah. And it was a beautiful experience. There was no, it didn't take any work any resilience on my part to make to get there so the only the when, when you asked me about resilience in my childhood um it's never about music because music was never anything but a joy for me to be a part of but most other things in my childhood or many other things in my childhood were not so much Full of joy. There were things you were expected to, to do if you were a kid. One of them was play football. I hated playing football. I liked football. I hated playing football. Um, but I did because I thought it was it was expected. So there was a there was a CYO team I was on. Um, there was a, uh, a turkey thicket was a Rec Center, not too far from my house. I'd walk over there, and, and I was left tackle with the Turkey Thicket Rams. And I got knocked on my butt every single play. Practice was hell. Talking about hot. You know, shoulder how, pads. How long did you stick with it, with football? I did that for a couple of years. I did the CYO also for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And and you got to, you know, this, this was, I mean, was no fun. I mean, you, if you if you played a, another school or another rec center and you won, you had to fight. Mm-hmm. If you lost, you had to fight. You know, you you, you try to get from the from the you field to the bus, to the bus <laughs> as quickly as possible. Um, so, and again, you know, I've never I never have thought about it in terms of whether it was resilient of me to to do that. Because at some point I did, I I, I gave up. Um, but there were, you know, there were things about being a kid that, you know, like for every for every kid, there's there's easy things and there's hard things, and that for me was a that was hell for me. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. That I, really does sound terrible. Was, uh, yeah, my, my brother played football through college, and he was great. Uh, came very close to going professional, but I. We're built very similarly, probably have the same. Can, can, I could achieve some of the same athleticism that he achieved, but I did not care for football at all growing up. And I remember the football coach coming to my algebra class telling me I need to join the football team. Uh, and I said, I'm not, I have zero interest. And I, I did not join. Passion gets placed on us as, as males that you have to be passionate about football or some sport. Uh, but for many, it's... That's not the case, and I, I love that you had an alternate passion in music yeah. to pursue. That was a blessing because I don't know what else I would be doing, but I've never had to ask myself that question 
other than just rhetorically. When did the moment crystallize for you? Or when did that idea crystallize for you? You said that it's always been a joy, it's always been a goal to play the saxophone. Well, in a way, it crystallized when you asked me the question. Because it's been such a given, you know. I mean, I've never done anything else. You know, I've I've done temporary work, you know. I worked at retail, you know, I swept floors, um, you know, but I've never had a, a job in any other career but this. And I've always been relatively successful at it. I've always been in bands. I've, I've been all over the, the world. I've met incredible people of all races and of all persuasions. And, uh, you know, the world is big and beautiful, as my wife likes to say. And it's not as big or beautiful as it used to be, but it it still offered somebody like me, when I was coming up, extraordinary levels of, of opportunity. And it's I've, I've never done anything but that. All my heroes, all of them are musicians, except for my father and my mother. So DC has a rich musical tradition, as you're alluding to, so if we can paint more of that picture and share with us how music has shaped the culture of DC. The, the music scene in, in Washington, you know, it goes through these, all these different iterations. Um, one movement might be led by, you know, like a, a Duke Ellington, and then another powerful person comes, comes out, like, you know, Marvin Gaye or Chuck Brown. These powerful magnetic people who sort of move the the poles of of music you know just by the f- the force of their their intellect and their and their creative abilities when i was when i was coming up there were people who were i mean i guess you could call them unsung heroes but you know people that i met at at uh, the DC Youth Orchestra Jesse Adams Herschel McGinnis Great educators, powerful, patient, talented musicians. There was music everywhere in this in the city back then, and it wasn't. There was no such thing as East of the River, at least not in our minds, because East of the River was just another place you would go to listen to or or to, to play music. There was nowhere that was more or less dangerous, at least in our minds, than other places. I mean, there was just we worked all the time, everywhere, yeah. and. There was so much to learn because there were places in, in Washington, D.C., like the One Step Down and like the Pigfoot uh, and the Moore's Love and Peace and, and Mr. Wise and, and famous places that people from out of town would come to. And you could go and see these super famous people in your in your hometown. You, know, you could see Eddie Harris. You could see you know, Buster Williams. You could see Clifford Jordan. You could see Sonny Stitt. See Dexter Gordon, uh, Dupont Park had a, years and years of incredible music. Mm-hmm. So there was, I mean, it's it's hard for me to explain just how beautiful it was to be a musician in Washington D.C. when I was growing up. 
not only were there great musicians coming into D.C., but there was a, uh, a family of musicians here that all supported each other. There was the, uh, what was the, Summer in the Parks, um, the, the, the Ambassadors, the Jazz Ambassadors program, mm-hmm. Gilbert Pryor, McNeil Anderson, all these wonderful people who were like mentors to me when I was coming up. It was, you know, you would go to jam sessions all the time. You would hang out all night long. It was just a very fertile and great time to be alive. In some ways it still is. Um, Can you talk about the transition to your point about the district being this fertile ground is that that fertile ground served to attract a lot of people and to establish a reputation here in Chocolate City of it being a wonderful place to be a musician and that creates a culture and a perception about the district being an arts town and then gradually though we have gentrification. So I'm curious about your thoughts on maintaining and preserving music here in the district either through movements like Don't Mute DC that we talked about or other ways that musicians are contributing to the culture and maintaining the culture? I have been able to be an employer to a certain extent of musicians for a long time. That has given me a kind of an insight into what the the, the stresses are um, in the area uh, as far as people who are trying to make a living playing music. And it has gotten much more difficult to be a professional musician in, in, in the area than it used to be. In 1985, I was making $75 on a Friday night playing at the Park Place Cafe. There are places in D.C. that will still offer you $75 to play, you know, they'll still offer you a hundred dollars to play. That's like so uncool as to be. Right. <laughs> to put it very. It's, it's, what an understatement! <laughs> They've not heard of inflation. It's it's, it's unspeakable. <laughs> it is. And and every and everybody is complicit, except the people who refuse to do that. You know, there there were there's a place in, in Georgetown called the Saloon, and some friends of mine used to work there. Oh yeah, I remember. And that I, spot. I would never work there because they were paying eighty dollars on a on a on a on a weekend. That's somebody's meal. And it was That's a, like it was a when huge their place. patrons' tab is eighty dollars, and they're going to pay you eighty dollars for a couple hours of work. That's crazy. It is crazy. So uh, some people pl- were paying more, you know, but um, but the the cost of living has changed. The co- cost of Doing business is still so, so, so tied to, to old ideas about what a musician is is worth. Now, if you're you know if you're a church musician, you can make you know you make many many times that. You absolutely can. If you're a go-go musician, you can make many many times that. If you're you know if you're playing with some, one of these really really fine you know go-go bands, but if you are an itinerant, you know journeyman jazz musician in Washington D.C., you have to really really struggle now whereas before there was so much work that you could make a hundred dollars a night if you if you're making you know you're working six nights a week and you're in your and your rent is four hundred dollars you it's okay those days are, are long gone but i would argue that those days where you were playing every night and there was this thriving city 
contributed in a fundamental way to making DC what it is today, to making the district a destination city. So when I hear that, it really pains me to think about the ways that those musicians are not able to participate in the resurgence of the district. Is that a good way to look at it, or are there some holes in that? Well, no holes, but, but there are always musicians who find a way. You know, when I'm, I'm, I'm just using that sort of baseline as to, just to show you that if you're a young musician, you're coming up in, in D.C., you can't live in D.C. and, and make those kinds of, kinds of wages. But there are people who are, who are versatile, teach, who travel, people who, whose level of musicianship is so extraordinary that they are known all over the world and just happen to live in Washington, D.C. So it's, it's, still, it's still possible, you know. And like in any business, there are people who are going to succeed to a greater extent than others. The one thing that Washington has, all, has always had and, and continues to have is the reputation of birthing extraordinary musicians, which D.C. still does at a steady and very gratifying rate. And there are, there are institutions that support musicians in Washington, D.C. The National Endowment for the Arts, the D.C. Jazz Festival, Duke Ellington School, uh, the Levine School. There are, there are a lot of, of people who, who get up every morning and, and have this kind of conversation. How can we help artists in Washington? And, and they, do a, they do a good job. So I, I don't mean to paint a too bleak a picture. Uh, it's just that you know, when we were talking about the, the joy of being a musician, it's hard work to do this now. You know, going into a, into a jazz club and listening to the music is not the same as going into a, a venue where the music is an afterthought. And, you know, if, if you're in an audience and there's, and there's a jazz band playing, if you didn't come to hear the jazz band, then I, I can't expect you to all of a sudden just change your whole, your, your whole train of thought and say, okay, well, this, we're having a, we were going to have a birthday party, but now I think we should sit here and just be respectful to this to these, to these musicians. That happened at my birthday party with my singer. I remember I told him to shut the fuck up and listen to, <laughs> listen to the singer. <laughs> Which you kill, by the way. I mean, you know I love Grover Washington Jr., but I'm like, I love Marshall Keys doing Grover Washington Jr. more than I love. (laughs) (laughs) Man, that's great. I forgot about that. Yeah. So we're going to begin to uh, transition into our final segment. But before we do that, you casually mentioned that you had done a show with um, the godfather of Gogo with Chuck Brown. So that sounds like an epic experience, an epic D.C. experience. Can you tell us about that? It didn't happen in D.C. It happened in Nashville. Okay. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I've, I was never, um, like, friends with Chuck Brown. But, you know, if you're a musician, you know Chuck Brown, and you, know, and you certainly know a lot of people who played with him. Because he's always had, you know, great people in his band, you know, mm-hmm. Greg Boyer, you know, all these fantastic musicians. Um, but uh, there was a recording session uh, instigated by a guitar player, and he hired me and and a, and a bass player and a drummer from Baltimore, and he hired a really really famous 
a Mexican guitar, Mexican guitar player, and he hired some really, really super wonderful Nashville musicians all to be a part of this very interesting project. And we recorded over, I think, three or four days at um, Ricky Skagg's studio in Nashville. Chuck Brown, who is known mainly as the, father, the godfather of, of Go-Go, and uh, also with his work with the, uh, the young lady who, who died, the singer-songwriter, um, I can't think of her name. Everybody who's going to listen to this will say, duh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to see him in this environment with these, like, there were a lot of fantastic musicians down there. And he was so professional, so in, in every way the, the star of that company. You know, kind, professional, friendly, super prepared. So we, we, we made this record, and it never came out. <gasps> what? What do you do when that happens? It never came out. Apparently, there was a one of the other vocalists on this project decided at, uh, that she was unhappy with the financial situation. And she dragged it out, dragged it out, dragged it out. And in, in some ways, it was a timely project. It was meant to address a certain kind of event and, and mood. And the songs were not all in that, uh, in that vein. Most of the ones that, that Chuck was on were kind of to address a certain topic, you know, and didn't last forever. So, um, yeah, come by one day. I'll play it for you. Okay. Everybody's <laughs> heard that invitation, so we're coming. Well, I, I forgot I was talking to other people besides you. <laughs> well, no, not listeners, but Ann and I are coming. Tell you another real funny story about that is that I was coming out of my hotel on my way to the studio first day and I got a call and it was somebody asked me if I could sub for Earth, Wind & Fire's saxophone player um, the next night at mm -hmm. at like, I forget where they were, Wolf Trap or somewhere mm -hmm. like that. No, I can't I can't do mm -hmm. that. Down here in Nashville. Oh, right. man. I know. I know. But wow, what a life, like you were saying, to have Chuck Brown on the one hand and then uh, EWF calling you for another gig. Yeah. Sounds like you were winning at that moment. I was, but you know, I I, I didn't have any outfits. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been <laughs> appropriate for the Earth with the Fire Year. That's a picture. Oh, that's, that's funny, Marshall. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious, Aaron. Where do you want to go next in terms of um, our conversation? What do you want to talk about? Oh, I don't know. I, I do want to. Thank you for introducing, because when we talk about resilience, we haven't heard that kind of being born anew. Resilience makes you become born anew. As we talk about bouncing back, bouncing back to where you were before so you can keep going, but it does renew you. Uh, I, I, I read a, a quote, mm -hmm. and I hope I get it right, but it was, resilience makes us into warriors, Actualization teaches us to be magicians. Hmm. It was something like that, mm -hmm. and you know, so the the kind of going hand in hand, I think, is 
you know, one without the other because you know I'm being you know having a dream without being having a tough skin is is almost impossible. But being resilient without having a dream is also sort of. I mean, if if existence is the end game, then yes, resilience is is a fantastic skill to have. If you want more, then you you have to be able to to dream, and that's that's so. You know, I, I was I was talking about this the barbershop um, incident, and this guy, the my barber, this young guy, he's he is just. Uh, Expecting a son, you know, mm-hmm. with you know, with a, a woman he's not married to. Mm-hmm. His father was not close to him because it just wasn't. It was kind of a surprise. Mm-hmm. His father's father was not close to his father mm-hmm. for the same reason. So he comes from this this lineage of these these missed opportunities, these broken families, and here he is. Having having the exact same thing happen to him, but we talked about how you have the opportunity to break that that chain, break that to break that cycle, and and learn from the mistakes of your father and your grandfather, and be a good a good father to your son. And he was like, "Yeah, that's what I'm. That's what I want." Mm-hmm. You know. So there's nothing that requires more resilience than being a young man young black man with a child on the way you got to figure out how to take care of yourself and your children and your and your your partner you know if anybody needs resilience it's that it's that young man but it's and it's encouraging to talk to somebody like that because everybody that you read that you see on the street does not have that kind of mindset you know i wish they did but they don't let's talk about joy Let's talk about joy. Um, we always ask our guests uh, what music they love. And it's interesting to ask a musician what music they love, but that shouldn't be interesting at all. But I'm sure you sure you can you can list off a number of of, of items uh, or, or a number of artists. Artists. Yes. <laughs> but, but what comes to mind? Anything in heavy rotation or a go to that Um so being a saxophone player back in the day where some where most bands had horns you know um, there was um a band called Cold Blood and they had a a, a singer named Lydia Pence she's what they call blue-eyed soul singer and um is that code a blue-eyed it just means she was white and Blonde. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought. It <laughs> and like. sang her ass off. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Blue eyed soul. Yeah. And uh, so, so all these bands, you know, Chicago, you know, um, all, all the all the black bands, you know, they, they all had they all had horns, you know. Mm-hmm. There is a you gotta you gotta check this out. There is a there is a song on one of their later albums. The, the album is called First Taste of Sin" by Cold Blood. And there are two songs on that record that were written by Donnie Hathaway. Oh, my goodness. One is called Valdez in the Country, which was an instrumental. I know that song. Donnie Hathaway wrote that song. That's on this Cold Blood record. (laughs) The other song is a song called You Had to Know. 
had to know because I told you so. I've told you so many times that if you left, I'd lose my mind. And anyway, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. She sings it amazingly. It's powerful. There's strings. It's a great production. Donna Hathaway produced the, the CD. Not too long ago, a recording of him singing that song surfaced on, on YouTube. It's Maybe it was a, a demo. Maybe he gave them the finished product and she just sang on it. But it's a, a version of that same exact song with the same arrangement, same musicians, with Donny Hathaway singing it. And the one that just so the name of that band again was Cold Blood. Cold Blood. They had a. And the album was called First Taste of Sin. First Taste of Sin. Do you hear all of that? Can we put Cold that on Blood? the Thanksgiving uh, playlist? No. No. <laughs> Their first record was called Sisyphus. <laughs> But wow. you know, great, great, great band. Because you know, yeah. you know the, the bands that I was in back there, we were all playing instrumental music. Mm-hmm. You know, and and the, you know there was this was before hip hop. This was before, mm-hmm. way before go go. Yeah, you know the foundation, right? Yeah, we were, we, were play, we, we played take from that. We played rock and roll and soul music. Right. Um, it's interesting to hear. I'm still thinking about that title and the song that that song brings you joy. And From cold blooded to first taste of sin to oh yeah that's my that's my jam really lifts my spirits yeah and uh, you know so Donny Hathaway was is you know Layla Hathaway is is just the most beautiful singer mm-hmm. I can imagine I've, I've only seen her live once but I just I just melted you know just 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 seeing how that talent that her father had is is so so wonderfully imbued in her in her spirit and and in her. But other than that, I listen to Wayne Shorter a lot still. Um, I listen to, I listen to everything. I listen to all kinds of music. What about that hip hop? Um, I listen to hip hop when I'm in my car. Are you bumping Biggie in your SVD? I don't play the hip hop. I just hear it because it's being blasted by people in other cars. <laughs> <laughs> Marsha, you set me up. <laughs> that was a setup. Because here I am thinking that <laughs> you are listening to Big Papa, and you're like, no, it's in the lane next to me. <laughs> right. If I was to listen to hip-hop, it would be Biggie Smalls. Oh, okay. 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 He's, he's, he's my favorite. Yeah. I liked him, and I, li- and I liked Heavy D. Oh, there what? we go. I wouldn't have expected that combination. No. I mean, obviously the biggie and the heavy. I just, I just like the I just like the way they flowed. You know, mm-hmm. I, the, the, the personas. You know, I, I really was. I just like you know, just there's a there's a uh, a uh, a song on the Minister Society soundtrack, mm-hmm. and I, I forget the name of the woman. She she never was like famous, mm-hmm. but she sings this this song, and it is the most vulgar mm-hmm. song. But the flow is, is <laughs> so incredible. The way she, you know, way she approaches mm-hmm. the rhythm is just, and that's and I and I like that about about hip hop. Yeah. Uh, I don't like hardly anything else about hip hop. But that's like the essence. I remember having these arguments yeah, early on. Yeah, with with our parents and with other people who were critics. See, Dolores Tucker, who also was very anti hip hop. She's like, oh, those lyrics. 
I'm like, yes, and the flow. Do you hear the delivery? Do you hear the musicality of hip hop and of and of rap? So I think that you know, you but you can't di- divorce one from the other. You know, mm. um, there's there's a guy that I played with. I did a gig with not too long ago. His name is Javier Starks, and he's a he's an MC, very, very talented young man, and he, and he doesn't use foul or offensive language, and he doesn't have to, and he's he's a he's a fantastic musician, you know. So you don't you don't have to do that, you know, and and all the all the ills that society you know forces upon black people are in many ways they they pale in, in comparison to some of the ills that we that we force on ourselves you know i mean that mu- music is is the most powerful thing that is at our disposal you know and i mean way more power than, powerful than 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 sports way more powerful than than politicians you know the ability to bring to bring people together and to share a positive message and to and to and to Bring joy from your life to somebody else's life. That's a, that's that's a gift, and and it's it is. I don't care how much these folks, some of these folks can flow. My opinion is that that gift is is squandered, in 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 many respects, and the people who benefit from them are not the people. Me too. Well, thank you. Very much for this. Oh, nice. <laughs> I, to, I, I feel we're definitely only no. scratching the surface. And we, we're going to have to have a part two on Marshall Keys. Can we have a part two? Man, we, we can talk about my time on the road. That would be great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I've played with a bunch of people, and, and most of them are not, you know, not household names, but uh, some of them are. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, talking about paying your dues and having to be resilient when you're. You're, you know, four guys in the band, and you're in a hotel room, and you're two of them you are are on the mattress, and two are sleeping on the box springs, and <laughs> yeah. and traveling across the country like that, you know, having to change your tire and on the van in the middle of a snowstorm on your way to going on your way to Chicago, mm-hmm. you have to unload all the equipment from the back of the van. Yeah. That's that was those are, that's, but it was I, jo- it was joyful. I would love to have that conversation because I. When you were just saying that, it made me think about the Ray Charles story uh, of him getting on the bus and going across the country to for an opportunity to be able to showcase his ability to be an amazing musician. Um, and that's just a movie about Ray Charles, but I can imagine there are thousands of amazing stories like that. Yeah, to know, and, and because with, it wasn't so much like my sacrifice, but being witness in many times to the sacrifices that people that I was working for to see what they had to go through as band leaders. I'm just a saxophone player in the band. To see what they had to go through dealing with, with club owners and, and hoteliers and and all the people who, you know, gangsters. And you have to be a really hard person to 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 be a musician, at least, at least back then. You know, these, these were not, these guys, not all of them, you know, but they, you know, they, they carried, they carried pistols. They, they ran numbers out of their, out of their 
their their establishments. I mean, it was these were colorful people, <laughs> you know, and and I don't I don't run into those people anymore. Mm-hmm. I I don't I don't need those skills. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody I I deal with is is cool. I imagine when you're waking up in the morning, your first thought isn't, "Man, I'd love to run into a gangster who's running numbers." <laughs> you're like. I'm actually good. When we when we finish rolling tape, I'm going to tell you one quick story. Cut <laughs> <laughs> the tape. Cut the tape. Thank Cut you for having me, folks. Thank you. Thank you, Rhonda. You Thank you, Aaron. You're a wild dude. Thank you. Truly I really enjoyed this, man. I really yeah. enjoyed this. Next time, I, I'll you know I'll, I'll play a little bit. Absolutely. When it has to be next time. <laughs> Aaron can't time. even get the words out. <laughs> <laughs> Let me alone, Rhonda. I know, but you're such an easy target. <laughs> that was great. Are you still, are we done? Okay, great. So we could hear, <laughs> hear this story. <laughs> we were, we were. Thank you for listening to the jazz edition of The Dap Project. Big thank you to the award-winning saxophonist, Marshall Keys. Did you catch how he introduced a melody, complicated it, then brought it all together? Can I break it down? At the beginning of the episode, Keys introduced Dap at the barbershop. Then he talked about resilience as part of the pursuit of excellence. And then brought it back with a story about a young barber demonstrating resilience to break generational curses and pursue excellence in fatherhood. A whole mic drop. So humbling to hear about the life and times of Marshall Keys, a true DC gem that folks around the world have had an opportunity to appreciate. You can find Keys works on his website, marshallkeys.com. That's Marshall, K-E-Y-S. As we get into the full swing of the holidays, look out for our playlist for the season. You better believe Marshall has inspired a pick or two for our annual holiday playlist to keep you in an upbeat and soulful mood throughout the holidays. Now, I love listening to music while I'm cooking, and I know a lot of people do too. So I'm going to queue up the TDP holiday playlist while I'm trying recipes from our holiday pick for TDPB reading. Black Food by Bryant Terry. Check out our IG page for all the details. Remember, resistance is a highway with many lanes. Trust the process and you will find yours. Take care, folks. 